Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan, halfway to the Pro Tour, Sax. You're on day two of the sealed PTQ qualifier on Arena. How does it feel? It feels uh, it feels fine right now. You know, I was just going over my pool with you. Uh, you got me a little bit more excited about it than I was. We've been here before, right? We've both, I think, for one time before for limited i've made it to day two of one of these things um i've actually made it to day two in constructed once back in the day and uh but yeah fizzled out pretty quickly so i don't know we'll see if my pool can get me there and uh we'll, we'll make sure to put it up on youtube yeah been there before but you my friend have some bombs in your pool this time yeah i was like really excited because i opened uh i mean almost all of my rares are good and three of them being gruff triplets um, Fawn's Bane, Troll, and Goose Mother. And I was like, who just please let my green be like somewhat decent, somewhat deep. It's like the most shallow, unplayable green. I have like eight, seven other green cards, and they're like the bottom of the barrel, like the two four reach, two of the plus two plus two auras that you can get back, the little toadstool duel whatever the one drop that has ward two so i was feeling like i needed to just leave up red black aggro but i think ben is convincing me to do otherwise can't can't leave those rares on the sideline one of those green cards is commune with nature which is basically just another copy of all three of your rares i mean you're always going to find one of the rares off commune right that's how it works always i mean you do have to get like to win whatever to go seven one or seven oh yesterday and to get i don't think you actually need to get all seven wins to qualify as like one of the members Members of our Discord, Glosu, did so, I think, in the last limited qualifier. They got there at five and two. So I don't think you actually need to really get max wins. And you got to get a little lucky, right? So let's get a little lucky with Commune with Nature. I love it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to sell you pretty hard on uh, heavy black, light green, gruff triplets, goose mother. <laughs> splashing no, no, oh yeah i forgot to mention literal no fixing no evolving wilds no edge wall in no prophetic prism no whoa, scarecrow whoa. oh my collector's vault my friend excuse me which isn't it's fixing and card draw right there you go you're gonna find your bombs faster exactly dig towards actually collected that now that i'm thinking about it, collector's vault plus oversold cemetery that's what i said <laughs> i was processing a lot in the moment <laughs> i was i was feeling a little dejected and i was trying to get on board and so yeah that's part of it okay look I'll, i think think that's what I'm going to run. I just need to I need to mull it over. So I will be mostly not present for the next <laughs> 60 the next minutes hour of recording. Podcasting. No, just kidding. Um, did you take a look at the deck that I qualified with yesterday? I have not seen it. No, wait. Yes, oh. I did. I did. I did. You had double Imidane's recruiter and every good black and red card in the set. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was not. I was black, white, mono removal. It was like double princess takes flight, double stockpiling celebrant, double candy grapple. Um, I had the white sweeper. I had Rankle's Prank as like a double edict. And then, yeah, Imidane's Recruiter and just like a bunch of ways to recur them, like an edge wall in and back for seconds. And But a really like interesting pool, like ended up playing two candy trails in there just to like, I was like, I think I just want the scry and the the life gain and which I would not have thought about like, oh, I'm excited to play these candy trails in a deck. I chose to be on the draw every time I won the die roll Ooh. because I had like mono removal and the sweepers and I don't regret that. I did two deck swaps in classic Ethan fashion. Yeah, it was fun. The whole run will be up on our YouTube channel, I think by the time this episode comes out. So if you want to watch that, um, there's some some fun sealed action for you. Yeah, your pool today would kill for a couple candy trails. <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I'd be so happy with some some kind of deck manipulation in some way. Yeah. But alas, alas, I'll have to rely pretty heavily on the collector's vault if I run the Ben Werney special. It's going to do it for you. I believe in the vault. Well, fingers crossed. And, and no matter what, again, the, that second run will also be up on our YouTube channel later in the week. So uh, you'll have an opportunity to, to follow along at home if you want to. But for now, whoa, we're halfway there, Ben. We get to use the episode title. Heck yeah, we do. Bon Jovi bringing us in <laughs> to the midway point. Love to see it. Yeah, last week at the end, we sort of like backtracked as we do around this point um, about like, okay, so 50 takes is at what week and how many more episodes do we have and what do we want to make sure we're still covering, etc. And then we realized that we kind of blew it 
because <laughs> we 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 struck gold a little bit last set when we did the here's how we'd prepare for the the pro tour episode where we like ranked our commons and uncommons and came to the episodes with separate lists and we we're like well, let's do that again but it felt a little tough to do off the heels of worlds just feels like we missed it which we did but I love a secret list. I want to do as many secret lists as possible. So we gave ourselves a different prompt for this week, which was that the idea here was we haven't really talked about the rules of engagement for the format yet, right? So the idea was we're going to bring to the table a tweet, something that is 280 characters or less about the format. And I guess you could sort of do with that what you will. I think the idea was that it would be five bullet points, five talking points, but like just like you only have this amount of characters to convey as much information to someone as possible. Let's say I was talking to Ben, or he was talking to me, and one of us had never touched this format before, never seen the cards going into a draft blind. What do you need to know about it? And then as uh, maybe a way to talk about some specific cards or some strategies, we also have a list of five underrated cards that we want to talk about. How, how was this for you? Was this pretty easy for you to put together list-wise? Did the talking points come readily or were you having to really think about how you were going to craft this tweet? I mean, I had plenty of time to think. I was doing this on Friday night at our Jasper High School football game while the old eighth grade uh, band class that I teach was pulled up to to perform at the high schoolers. So while supervising like 120-ish kids-ish, you know, I was carefully uh, applying all of my leftover thought process to this this list and these tweets. But yeah, I think I, I feel good about where I ended up. I think Excellent. I approached it slightly differently than you in that it was like where the format is right now. Like if somebody... Mm-hmm had been drafting, maybe they had played with the cards. I'm like, maybe they already know it's a Jund format or whatever. Like, I, I assume they know some things about the format. Oh, okay, great. All right, well, then maybe that'll be perhaps helpful for us in terms of not having a ton of overlap there. Um, and I'm just hoping that the secret lists will spark some conversation. We've got a draft log in the the back burner if you and I have trouble filling the time, but show, show notes are a little naked for us. <laughs> Show notes are naked, but that's what that's that's what Ben likes. Ben wants us to to have less on the page, more in the air, as it were, between us. So we're gonna have a great conversation today about the format. A couple housekeeping things before we dive into that. First things first is the Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash Lords of Limited, where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. Of course, the show will always be free, but you get access to some great perks over at the Patreon page. If you want something like you know the the old you know we're given to PBS or to NPR, and you get a tote bag, we have some tote bags for you in the form of Discord membership to the Lords of Limited Discord. It's hopping, it's popping, 24-7 limited tech support. Uh, moving up the reward tier ranks, you get access to the show notes in advance of the episode, get access to the episode a day early even. You know, we're recording on Sunday and then I quickly edit. I don't know how quickly that'll be today with the, the championship qualifier. Hopefully, I'll have a lot of magic to play before getting to the editing portion of the day, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. So you get access to the episode day early, get access to monthly coaching sessions with me or Ben if you move all the way up the reward tier ranking. So if any or all of that sounds of interest to you, head on over to the Patreon page. And of course, we want to shout out our new patrons the first week that they join. So this week, we're welcoming Samuel, Christopher, Chia, Mike, BRC, James, Evan, Nate, Paul, Lionel, and Andrew. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, seriously, cannot say thank you enough. Show is also brought to you by CoolStuffInc.com, where they've got cool stuff in stock. And whoa, name of the format. <laughs> That's what they've got in stock right now. Those draft booster boxes, if you want to pick one up to draft with your friends sometime down the road. Also, I still am fired up about competitive magic. I was the one that pitched you the secret commons, uncommons list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, I just want to talk about and play competitive magic. So if you've got some people around you want to jam with, or maybe you're trying to get a standard deck together, Pioneer, who knows? Maybe you need singles for that commander deck. Anything that you're purchasing, Magic the Gathering related or otherwise, please head on over to CoolStuffInc.com and make those purchases there. And when you do, please remember to use checkout code LOL, all caps, to get 5% off your purchase. All right. So did you make your little 280 characters or less a list, or is it more of a, a free-form paragraph? Oh, I, I went with pop, baby. I tried to keep them way less than 280 characters. I think the, the best tweets are short, sweet, to the point, my friend. No, nobody wants a, a paragraph in their Twitter scrolling feed. I agree. I'm sub 200 characters. 
in my uh, my list. Uh, you better be. Those are the rules, man. No, 280 <laughs> it's the li- is the rules. I'm just telling you, I also chose brevity to be the soul of wit oh, with my good. list. Wow, um, look at you. You're <laughs> a theater major. <laughs> there it is, buddy. Um, so do, do you want to say anything about, you already sort of described your philosophy of choosing to talk to someone about the format right now, October 1st, live and in theaters, like w- anything else you want to give before we get into these points? I don't think so. Let's quit teasing and get into it. All right. Give me your first bullet there. Number one, feel very strongly about this one. Feel very passionately. Draft blue and draft white if they're being passed to you. Okay. So this is off the heels of it's a Jun format. And so clearly that means blue and white are terrible, right? Yeah, absolutely. Of course not. Because yeah. the data just doesn't tell the whole story. So I think it's easy to get caught up in the narrative of the format's aggressive cabs. You got to affect the board. And like some of that is certainly true. But there's also my initial reaction of the format was that there were a lot of great cards in the format, a lot of great rares running around that took over the game single handedly. Certainly that was my experience during early access. And I think that still holds true a little bit like the gap between blue and white's best cards and John's filler cards is significant, right? Like blue and white's best cards are way better than the medium Jund cards. And that's, I think, formats where we've said it's a Grixis format or it's an Abzan format or whatever. A lot of that has been when the format's been out of balance power level wise. And and yes, blue suffers at common a little bit. But I, I do think there's a bit of a groupthink mentality right now with data and with uh, the the picture of the format that if you're not willing to draft blue and white, you're certainly missing out on a lot of win percentage equity. There's some drafts that you're supposed to draft blue because everybody else in your pod is trying to get into the Jun colors. And it's not so out of balance that it's not self-correcting in that way. Yeah. I mean, I one of the things when we were brainstorming about an episode to do, and maybe we will even still do something like this down the road, but I was like, well, maybe you've been drafting a lot of blue. Maybe you can talk about blue and I can talk about white. And you're like, I don't really like those episodes where we just sort of monologue at each other, which I agree. We can move away from that. But I think it's worth talking about and digging in a little deeper here about like what is it about those colors that does hook you? Like when you say what's being passed to you or are there certain color pairs you like? Because I've been ending up in white quite a lot. Blue, not so much, but I've been playing a lot of white. Stockpiling Celebrant is just a number one. My, my top drafted common, I think it is amazing. It does all the things white wants to do. It is not what I think white's best common is, but like the better Stockpiling Celebrant is in my white decks, the better my white decks are. Yeah, I think that certainly makes sense to me and checks out. For blue, for me, it's largely rares, but I think some people are so averse to blue that they're passing those rares because sometimes I get Italian's messenger third pick or whatever in the draft, Mm -hmm. you know, and then it's very obvious, okay, my neighbors either don't know how to evaluate this card or they really don't want to be blue. Either way, great for me to take Italian's messenger and move into blue and start drafting blue there. And some of it, too, is I think if you're not seeing the good aggro cards, you're supposed to try to beat aggro or build a deck that can stop aggro and win the late game. And I think blue is pretty good at doing that. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Is there a color that you're often pairing with blue? Like, are you being like, yeah, I'm interested in blue, but mostly just blue red? Or is there a flavor of blue? It sounds like probably to beat aggro. So are there certain cards? So obviously the rares hook you in, but are there certain commons or uncommons that jump out to you as like, these show up in my decks a lot? Yeah, I think blue white would be my most common color pair just because I I like that. And I've enjoyed being a little hipster about the data. But I think blue red is probably better or equally good to blue white. I think those are both the best homes followed by blue black. And then I'm hoping to not be blue green. And I'm actually kind of down on green in the format just in general because I'm so high on blue and white. And Mm. and I do think red has panned out to be the best color. Mm -hmm. So I think because I value red first and I also Uh end up blue and white a lot and I don't really like green pairing with any of the three of those, like really the only green deck I want, want to play is black green. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Certainly, I think black green as a two color deck Black green is green's best color pair. Right. And so if you're not black green, then you're just like green playing all of the cards. I think right. th- those are the two green decks for me in the format. And you don't need green for fixing because you've got prophetic I've got, prisms. I've got prop prism, collector's <laughs> vaults. I've got evolving wilds, baby. Yeah. yeah. So I think 
Now you'd asked about specific cards. I mean, I think, I think we're going to get into this in the underrated card section also. Sure. But I think Kellen's Light Blades goes criminally late and is premium in decks that want to win the late game. And you can pick up a premium removal spell like that. You also get hatching plans late and blues so good at bargaining. You just get the tools. You get good control cards for free. And then you can spend your picks on cards that, that stonewall the aggro decks. Yeah, that checks out. I buy it. All right. Draft blue and white if they're getting passed to you. All right, so my number one point here is, as far as mana value choke point, three is the new four. The first time I thought about four being the choke point was, I want to say back in, maybe it was M21, you had sort of, you were highlighting some four drops of like, they really have to affect the board when they come into play. And it's why cards like, Ashiok's Reaper, for example, from this format, the four mana three, three, whenever an enchantment goes to the graveyard from the battlefield, you draw a card. It's so alluring. It's so appealing. Ooh, the value. But at the end of the day, a four mana three, three is just really hard to get on board with. Like the stats for an, for something that doesn't have an immediate effect, like you sort of have to wait to untap the next turn and fingers crossed it survives and just dies to a sneeze. And what if you have to just block with it and trade off in combat with a three mana three two or a two mana three one it just it feels bad you're just gonna get got a little bit i think the three mana value slot is so easy to fill up in this format um a great example i think is the the filler or the the sort of redundancy of blacks to use black as another example of blacks three drops that make a rectangle so you've got sweet tooth witch the top of the heap, three mana, three, two makes a food. You've got the voracious vermin, the two, one rat that brings a rat token along and grows when creatures die. Uh, and then you've got conceited, Witch, the three mana, two, three menace with the adventure single black to put a wicked roll token on something. And they exist in that order in my mind, like one, two, three, but none of them are as good as minstrosity is. And not because minstrosity is a better card. Minstrosity is not a better card, but there are so much fewer ways to affect the board on turn two than turn three that when i see a minstrosity in a pack i have to take it because i know i will get one of those rectangle makers in the three drop slot download or maybe i don't get those cards but i get a feed the cauldron but like i'm going to get something that costs three mana that will be comparable maybe we're talking about c plus versus a c or whatever that i value and i'm not saying to take bad cards in the one and two drop slot. I'm not saying toadstool admirer up, up, up in that pick order. <laughs> but I I do feel strongly about the good ones and twos. It's why like, you know, whenever you take the, the stockpiling celebrant over a hopeful vigil, because you're like, oh, but stockpiling celebrant pairs so well with my white cards. Like you just have to take hopeful vigil because it's going to open up your opportunities later in the draft because of that choke point at the three mana value slot. Yeah, I hear it. You're kind of selling me. I was, I initial my initial reaction. You made a face. I did make a face face for those of you that are on the YouTube channel or those of you maybe that are listening via podcast that should be checking us out on YouTube. But I would be hard for me to pack one, pick one minstrosity over sweet tooth, Witch. I think that's, that's what I was thinking about. You're never pack one, pick one in either of those cards. I know. That's that's a bad example. I I agree. (laughs) I went through that whole discussion in my head and then decided (laughs) that, but I hear what you're saying as far as I have felt that as well, that your three mana value slot is pretty easy to get clogged. And there's I've been a lot of times the stockpiling celebrant one really spoke to me because it's been a lot of times I want to pick stockpiling celebrant. And I feel like I just I just can't like I got to take this two mana value thing. And maybe it's not even maybe it's not even a hopeful visual. Maybe it's just an armory mice like I've made that yeah. pick before for my curve. I did that in our showdown. We we. For folks who were clamoring for it, we did a a draft battle video, you versus me, we're hopped in the same pod. Um, You see Ben's draft, you see my draft, and we face the decks off against each other. I made that pick. Like I took Armory Mice, I don't know, pick three or four or something. I think over something that was quote unquote better, but I was like, I just know that I'm going to get to pick up something at the higher mana value slot. And I know I'm going to want Armory, like Armory Mice is not great. But it's just fine. <laughs> it's just fine. And what it's really got going for it is it costs two mana. Well, and that's something that's specific to this format, right? That's not necessarily going to be true in every format. No. But I definitely have felt that here. And I think I would tend to agree after after hearing you pitch it. Great. All right. Let's take a quick ad break and then we'll be back with the rest of the lists. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever feel like your brain is getting in its own way? 
Like you know what you should do, what's good for you, but you just can't do it. I feel like this is so applicable for Magic players. I've been recording my matches for these high-level draft events and then narrating them back for YouTube, and it's just amazing how many mistakes I pick up on that I make in the moment, like things I know are wrong to do, but for some reason I find ways to justify them. Talking through lines of play for yourself, with a friend, or for an audience can really help you put into words why you're doing the things you're doing. It's almost as if talking things through really helps. That's where BetterHelp comes in. Therapy can be a great opportunity to help you figure out what's holding you back, so you can work for yourself instead of against yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lords today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Lords. And now, back to the show. All right, we're back with number two. Know what wedge of the format you are drafting in. Okay, so again, we're sort of bopping around this Jund format idea, but then I'm I'm figuring out what you're saying from you're kind of in a Jeskai land these days, it sounds like. Well, but I don't even think it matters what wedge you're in, as long as you know the wedge that's going on. So I'm going to throw a color out to you, and I want to, I want to see what it does for you. If I say <laughs> you start with two blue cards. Where are you where are you anticipating your draft is going to go from there? Oh, it kind of depends what they are, but like or what or what wedges do you see? Like if we're if we're talking three color wedges, like where are you where are you think the most likely outcomes are for you if you start with two blue cards? It's probably most likely that I will want to be Grixis. I want to be playing in a Grixis space because I expect that I will, I will want a color to pair with blue that is deep and black and red are both quite deep because I feel like blue struggles with some of the, some of the things blue struggles with is needs cheap interaction. And so I get torch or grapple, hopefully from one of those two colors, it's going to struggle with a deep roster of commons. Both of those colors have that. And so that's what I'm going to be looking to boost up the power level of, I assume I'm starting off with two blue cards. They're going to be good. Also red and black bargain. Well, hopefully one of those blue cards is maybe hashing plans, whatever. Um, that's, that's what I'm thinking of if you tell me I'm starting blue. I, th- I think for me, it's just guy personally, or or immediately the color I'm looking to pair with blue is probably white, honestly, because I think they go so well together in a control shell. But uh, let's do a different one. Let's say you start with two black cards. What, what wedge do you see yourself playing in? I just end up in white a lot. So, <laughs> like... I do end up in in white a lot, and I would think black white. But then I think you're probably hoping to not start black, right? If you want to end up in white, because those don't pair great with each other. I mean, there's the not, there's not the in my nightmare stockpiling yeah. celebrant thing, but like I don't know personally, I'm pretty down on black white. Well, I'm not not me, not for uh, for EthanTeenLands.com. Black white doing really well. You love work, just working for those wins. So let me spin the wheels. Let me take maximum game actions. But I, honestly, if you're ta- if we're talking about wedges with black, I think it's Mardu. I think I'm probably likely to pair it with red or with white. And I, th- I think for me, yeah, I would I would be defaulting to the format Jund. I think if I'm starting black, just because mm. the cards play so well together. Like I love black green as a deck. I love black red as a deck. You frequently want to splash around or certainly maybe not even necessarily Jund. But if I start black, I'm looking to get into green and then figuring the rest out from there, like what other cards I'm going to splash or if I'm going to be straight black green. But there's so many situations like that that you can draw up about the format of you start a certain way and it means you're likely to end up in a certain space. Like we talked about this early on. I was trying to impress upon people after the staying open speech I gave. And I do still think that holds true. I think that holds water. I think you're supposed to stay open. And I think you're supposed to find a certain space in the format like this to play in, whether it's blue, white control or black, green food or white, red aggro. But there's pillars of the format for strategies, right? And like your early picks dictate a lot, which which pillar you're steering towards and just knowing what that means for your future picks and where you personally want to end up. I'm going to ask you to clarify a little bit because I think for me and for maybe our listeners, these two ideas sound a little bit at odds with each other because on the one hand, you're you're saying you can really stay open in the format, right? Which means 
You don't have to lock in to anything super early. And on the other hand, you're saying your first couple picks really dictate a lot about what you're going to do. Can you talk about how those two things are in conversation? Because they do, they, they could sound like they're in opposition with each other. Yeah. So for example, this is fresh on my mind because I was just watching this morning right before we recorded. I was watching Florida Man, um, Chris stream and he had his pack one pick one and had a bunch of choices. Like he could have taken the blue four six flying dragon, which was the pick he ended up making. He could have taken, you know, hopeful vigil. He could have taken a red card, like had options for like different equally similarly powered cards, nothing great, like all on the C plus B minus ish, but all going in very different strategies. Mm. And I think once you start down a strategy, like it's it's hard to get off of that strategy. Like if you value cut in highly, for example, it's highly likely that you're going to end up in some sort of a red aggressive strategy. But whether that's parent, you have a while to figure out after you start down a red aggressive strategy, whether you're going to be red white aggro or red black rats or red green beatdown or red blue kind of tempo aggro there. So you start down an aggro strategy, you're kind of locked into playing aggro, but you can figure out where and how you're playing that aggro strategy. Whereas if you start your draft with something that leans more towards the late game, like once you start picking, like, I guess those two things, almost like polar opposites, but there's mid range in there too. But the big picture strategy of your deck is hard to move off of. I think once you start down a big picture strategy, but then you have a lot of room to dive into a two color pair or figuring out a two color pair plus a splash or a three color. And when I say three color, you're not drafting full three color decks often. It's often two colors plus a splash of another color. But you have a while to figure out what that is after you pretty quickly narrow in on a bigger picture strategy. Yeah, I think that rings true for me. The the it's I don't often think about it as that's why the my my answers to your question of like you start blue, what's your wedge? Like I don't often. Think think about it that way but i am really thinking about maybe maybe talking about secret gold cards is helpful here or or to just recognize that there are secret gold cards of like okay i've got cut in but where is cut in going to be at its best ben outlined that great you start off with the the four six dragon in blue it's a great card but then it's all automatically it's like shrinking your opportunity to take expensive cards in the future or there's a cost to taking expensive cards later. And it's also dictating your deck wants to reliably cast this. What does that mean? How does that mean I'm going to be filling out the bottom of my curve? Like, what does that mean in terms of, am I more likely to want to pair it with green so I get some ramp? Am I, you know, like, what are the questions you're asking that it's not just, I took a blue card, pack one, pick one. There's so many other steps and layers and thoughts to it. I think for me, a lot of it is what I don't want to, put together also is a, is a yeah. thing like so for example if i start pack one pick one with italians messenger the the blue one three rare flying fairy and my second pick is a tough cookie i'm a i'm operating under the assumption that both of those cards are very unlikely to end up in the same deck for me and then like down the road i'm looking for which card i want to steer toward or which space i want to play in because they're in such different spaces and strategies of decks in my mind, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. All right, my number two, I couldn't possibly not talk about this without talking about it. The more game pieces, the more likely to win. So this is a rectangle theory in disguise? If if you want, if you want to put a label on it, if you want to <laughs> say rectangle theory, you can for sure. Um, but I really do think that a lot of the things that I think about with this format boil down to, and it's one of the points I probably should have discussed with regards to the mana value choke point, is roll tokens and bargaining. And and both of those mechanics get better the more you affect the board on turn one and turn two. Both of those mechanics revolve around the space of rectangles, whether they are creating rectangles, but for roll tokens to be good, you or roll tokens to be effective, you need to have bodies to put them on. And so you need to have cheap bodies to put them on. So you can, you know, drop them or if, even if they're adventures, you can, you know, adventure out your black two, three or your green four, three trample, you can adventure those out before casting them to get maximum value off of them. For bargain, as we talked about, bargain isn't actually there's not really a choke point often for bargain in terms of fodder to sacrifice. The choke point is often in the bargaining, in the good bargain. We've also often talked about bargain is an upside on cards, right? The fact that Agatha's champion, we thought, is the five mana four four with trample. If you bargain it, it fights something. We thought that was going to be clunky going in. Turns out bargain's an upside. 
having access to bargain is good because there are things that you want to sacrifice, whether it's your hopeless and hopeful enchantments to get that free scry too, whether it's hatching plans that you're really trying to just get maximum bargain for to draw three for quote unquote free or cheap, whatever it is, like how many times have we all candy grappled something that was a two-two and bargained it just so we could sacrifice something, could get a trigger, whatever it is. All of that stuff for me revolves around the space of the more game pieces you are making and interacting with, the more likely you are to win that game. Okay, so many thoughts rolling through my head with that. So first, diving into roll tokens, kind of how they tie in with bargain, like sacrificing roll tokens for bargain stuff as as bargain fodder. I think roll tokens have kind of fallen a little flat that way. I, I am down on roll tokens personally compared to the start of the format. Can you talk to me about what that means because i've i've went on a journey of roll tokens certainly um but i value wicked and young hero roll tokens quite highly yeah certainly young heroes excellent wicked also great but i i mean in the sense of if i'm bargaining especially i would prefer to play cards like red cap thief that just brings a treasure for me to bargain away or sweet tooth witch that brings a food for me to bargain away i have found that to be a much more convenient way to bargain than to put a roll token on something and then sacrifice that roll token. Like I've largely experienced roll tokens in the aggressive sense of like my creature now has plus one plus one and has better attacks rather than Mm. roll tokens being bargain fodder. Yes, I think that's true. And I also like there's a lot of filler or filler plus uh, cards in the roll token department, like Besotted Knight, the four mana three, three. You know, we talked about Conceited Witch as the two, three menace in black that is is bottom of the barrel of that trio of blacks three drops. I do think that that's certainly true that like you kind of have to be a little choosier about roll tokens these days and I'm not not thrilled to sacrifice them. I agree that I would rather sacrifice an enchantment like a hopeful vigil or a hopeless nightmare or a food token or a prophetic prism if I can handle it, you know. Right. Like roll tokens have almost turned into a niche space for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the things that what you're talking about with game pieces, like just making game pieces that are not roll tokens like food or rat tokens mm-hmm. that I'm much more interested in than roll tokens. And not that I won't do roll tokens, but it's more of a specific thing like white green roll tokens or Abzan roll tokens than it is like a format wide. And uh, to me, there are separate buckets like young hero, like young hero is just yeah. an aggressive card. That's just an aggressive deck. That's not really a synergistic Uh game piece in some senses. It's just an aggressive game piece. Right. Yeah. It sort of plays in a different space. And it's why, like, you know, I I was, uh, I went on a journey with Tanglespan Lookout. That's the tuna green two, three, uh, whenever. It's uh, not very good, right? Right. You, you, whenever you make an aura, you draw a card. There was a while where that like train wrecked a lot of my drafts early because I would see it pick five and i'd be like this card's insane you gotta take it but it's not really because there are plenty of times where i end up i mean in green black decks that are all in on food and then my tangle span lookout is just a three mana two three or then i'm like well am i it's a it, it causes deck tension because you start to think am i supposed to play conceited witch over sweet tooth witch no. because it makes an aura no right i don't really want to do that am i supposed to play this ferocious werefox probably not because like your four drop slot gets filled up so easily and like do i really want to spend the time to put the plus one the the monster roll token on something if if i'm gonna get blown out or whatever so i i agree i think tanglespan lookout is not that great it's a more niche strategy but i still still stand by the rectangle theory of it all no absolutely but i think the point i want to dive into with that I, i completely agree i think the cards that are making more generic game pieces uh-huh. are better than the ones that are making because so, like some of the the roll tokens like there's just there's a lot of cards in the format well this is my next point so we might as well get into it let's do it <laughs> number three you need to know what the good cards in the format want or even in some cases need alongside them like so this is kind of what i was just getting at with yours there's a lot of cards that come with a open-ended storybook, if you will, in Wilds of Eldraine, where you can choose your own adventure. But there's a lot of things that come pretty scripted. Like if you're taking hatching plans, very powerful card, you've got to get the bargain up, 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 up. Or for example, it's going to be really hard for you to pass Johan's stopgap. 
if you're taking hatching plans. Yeah, but Johan stopgap is not great. Like there's some there's some cost with picking hatching plans highly or princess takes flight or Tanglespan lookout. As you said, you can turn Tanglespan lookout into a pretty premium card. Should you like there's just a lot of implications with cards needing other cards or wanting other cards alongside them. And the best cards in the format are just great. Like they don't have those restrictions or prescriptions necessarily. Mm-hmm. So for example, cut in excellent in aggro. If you put cut in in a mid range or a controlling deck, it's going to be a lot less good if you're not pressuring the opponent with that young hero role, right? Cut in's power is when you kill their blocker, swing in, grow your creature, and then grow your creature again the next turn to where they don't still have good blocks against it. Because you're mostly losing a mana advantage with that card, but it makes up for it with the young hero role. Like you're often picking off, you know, a three drop with cut in, but cut in doesn't care about that. You can pick off a two drop with it. Cut in doesn't care about you getting maximum mana value or maximum even damage value. Like, oh, I got to pick off this X4, pick off an X3, an X2, an X1 with it. Cause then it's also enabling this attack, growing a thing and saying, now this thing not only is going to grow this turn, but next turn and maybe the next turn and maybe it's a ginger brute and now you got to kill this too. Right. But I think the the point I'm trying to make the broader point is I think there's probably people out there that are listening to our content, listening to other people's content, tuning into streams. And what you hear is cut-ins great, cut-ins busted, cut-ins broken, which it is. Like I think all of those things about cut-in, it's excellent, but you have to do work to make it excellent. But, and some of that, like some people never get into that or not that they never get into it, but they don't often get into well to really make cut in busted as a removal spell. You have to have everything you said. You have to have really value ones and twos highly so that you're on board. You need to be in a focused aggro deck so that you're putting pressure on your opponent. It's not just intrinsically a great card. You have to do the work to put it in the right place to turn it into a great card. And there's tons of cards like that in the format in the aggro space, in the mid-range space, in the control space, right? Kellen's Light Blades in your red-white aggro deck is fine. Like, you can play it in your red-white aggro deck, but as soon as you slot it into blue-white control, it's a premium removal spell with bargain upside, you know? Yes. So I I think there's tons of things like that in the format that people aren't necessarily latching onto. So if you're struggling in the format, that would be the number one piece of advice I would give to people that are struggling in the format is try to make sure you are putting good cards in the right home for them to really be maximum good because there's a lot of cards that change wildly in value based on their home. Well, I think I, I've switched around my order to dovetail off of your point into my next point, which is that color pairs are greater than their signposts. Ooh, preach. There and, and honestly, other than I would say the, the two that jump out to me are Ash, Party Crasher and Greta as like the two signposts that are great in their respective decks. Like Ash is, I think, one of the best cards in red, white aggro and actually point to what the color pair does best. They also happen to be perhaps, I mean, I don't know, maybe according to the data, they're the two best decks. In my estimation, they're two of the best decks that you can draft. The rest of the color pairs, not only do they not need their signpost to be good, their signpost doesn't tell the whole story of what their color pair can or should do. And sometimes, maybe in the case of like Johan, like fine and blue red, honestly, Johan's a better splash in like red green or teamer sort of oops all adventure soup than like, do you really need it in blue red? You can do it, whatever. But like, there's just so much more going on in the color pairs than the signposts allude to yeah i think that's a that's a premium i think that might be the best point so far it's good wow you might be winning the point battle but (laughs) johan i was going to shout out johan is excellent in blue red but you're i also then want to walk back i was going to interrupt you and and say that but i it also is great as a splash in blue white control or great as a splash in blue green teamer or life or whatever it it goes more places than just its home and you can't really say that about ash and Greta. like you could be black green splashing something else but you're still base black green if you're playing mm-hmm. Greta. But yeah, I completely agree. The signposts are not telling the whole story of the format for sure. And, and can take or leave them very often. I mean, certainly in the case of the blue ones, like Sheree and Obira, like really not telling the story of what and can can you get like a nuts blue white tap deck? Sure. Can you get a nuts blue black fairies deck? Sure. But largely those decks, one, they're going to depend on which color you're heavier slanted in. Are you more a blue based blue black or blue white deck? Or are you more a base black version or a base white version of those decks? That's going to dictate part of what you're doing. But it, it goes back to that conversation of like, know where the cards are going in their homes. And part of that is knowing 
knowing which color am I heavy in. I mean, honestly, it goes back to the pick of the archive dragon that Chris made this morning. Like when you take that card, it's tell it's starting to tell a story when that card ends up in your deck at the end of the draft. It's starting to tell a story of the home you see yourself ending up in and what that means for the picks you're going to have to make down the road. Yeah, completely agree. And I also think some of the signposts falling flat is that the off-color adventure cards are more powerful or mm. leave you more open in more cases to put them in your deck and get more value as a result. I think that's where some of the soup or the two-color, like to me, I would characterize this format as a two-color plus splash format most often. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and with the exceptions of like, if you're lucky enough or good enough to have drafted a great red, white or a great black green deck, like those are the two most common color pairs, I think that do not. That's why I feel incredibly unlucky that I opened zero fixing in my sleep pool today. <laughs> it's, it's brutal. <laughs> All right. Number four, mulligan sketchy hands so this is format specific this sounds like a note for yourself is what i'm gonna say <laughs> it's a note for other people <laughs> out there too i i think this format is closer to phyrexia all will be one on the mulligan philosophy than an, av- than an average format i think you really want to have a play lined up and loaded on turn two and i think you need to have a really good reason to keep a hand that doesn't have a turn two play wow okay And you feel like that's true, not just for aggressive decks, but just because of the prevalence of aggressive decks that you are likely to face? I just think it's easy to auto lose if you don't have a a cheap removal spell, a one or a two drop removal spell or a two drop play if you're not paying attention. Uh, Yeah, I just think you have to have a higher bar for getting on board early and not that every matchup is going to be that way but enough matchups are that way mm-hmm. that i think you're you're opening yourself up to getting preyed on by the red decks if you don't make sure you have a kellen's light blades in your opener or whatever yeah yeah i buy it and i, buy it. I think there are two for ones are trivially easy to come by in the format like so mm. you're gonna be like going down to six like you're gonna be able to make up card advantage if you've got a couple hatching plans in your deck you've got like there's just easy you just have a couple hatching plans in your deck he said i don't think that's crazy people hate blue yeah Uh, but yeah i just think there's trivially easy ways to two for one to make up for mulliganing and i think it's better to have a better opening hand than to have seven cards in this format is what i would say and yeah, like kind of a personal note. I, I would, would agree <laughs> with that, but I also think other people could benefit from my my personal note to myself. Well, you sh- you shouted out part of my fourth point, which is good interaction is premium. I mean, removal is back, back with a vengeance. Torch the tower and candy grapple being the top performing commons in the format according to seventeen lands. Top of my pick order for sure. I think good cheap interaction is premium. Removal is excellent in this format. I then also think there is a bit of diminishing returns that doesn't apply to those two cards, certainly, um, because also they bargain, which is incredible for them. Um, and then the teacher, and in the case of Torch the Tower, it's giving you a little scry sometimes. Exile is relevant, all that good stuff. But diminishing returns as you move up the curve, like flick a coin and rat out both cards that are performing very well and I think are are good but definitely go in the diminishing returns category. Like, do I want a flick a coin to my red deck? Almost certainly. Do I want three? Never, basically. Like maybe in a maybe in a very heavy spells deck with like the catapults, maybe. Um, do I want a rat out in my black decks? Probably. Do I want three rat outs? Never. There's a diminishing returns quality to some cards. Do I want a shatter the oath? Sometimes. Sometimes I'm, I need some way to deal with something big. Do I need three of those? No, not at all. Of course you don't. Interaction is great, like cooped up. You talked about Kellen's light blades. I think it sort of goes back to knowing what homes your removal spells are are going well in, like the cut in being good in aggressive decks, the light blades being good in defensive decks. And it doesn't always split that evenly down the middle, you know, in, in one bucket or another. Thinking about like once you have X number of removal spells, how many more do you need when you're an aggressive deck, when you're a more controlling deck? Um, but that all buckets back to good interaction is premium. Having that play on turn one, on turn two, to steal the play back from someone, as we talked about a lot in Phyrexia All Be One, when you get to fire off that Hex Gold Slash, when your Boros or Rakdos opponent 
plays their premium too, and you get to torch the tower it and untap and play your second land, and now you've stolen the play from them. It's a great feeling. Very good feeling. Cosine. Number five, unless you are, ooh, this one might be over 180 characters. I don't think so. Unless you are 280, whatever it is. Wow. Unless you are focused aggro, make an effort to play and splash powerful rares or uncommon adventures you see. I have a very similar 0.5, which is just don't be afraid to splash. Ooh, that's much, much cleaner. That's a way better tweet you crushed me. Don't be afraid to splash, folks. Talk to me, Ben, because you've been you've been jumping ahead. You you traveled in time to week four of the format on week one. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff going on. I mean, there's a lot of great cards that are going late, especially if you're in pods with people who subscribe to like have to be aggro, have to be cabs, have to be focused. There's a lot of goodies that get left on the table and you can snap those up and put them in your deck. And there's a lot of great tools for fixing for green decks and for non-green decks. So I think unless I am, I think probably those two decks you outlined, red, white, and black, green, blue, red's another common one where I don't splash at all. I would say those Mm -hmm. are the three most common no splashes. But otherwise, I'm I'm snapping up the goodies that people are passing around the table and I'm trying to put them in my deck. I I, I totally agree. I I think because of the prevalence of fixing, you can get away with splashing, or your splashing can be a lot more incidental, right? Thinking about certainly something as powerful as Imidane's Recruiter. Making sure you have access to the off-color, if that's in black-white or black-red, making sure you have access to the off-color part of that card is important, but it's not, it doesn't have to be as consistent as a true blue splash of like, got to make sure I have three reliable sources. It can be like, I've got an edge wall in, maybe I'll choose white, maybe I don't, not a big deal. I've got this treasure from something, maybe I save it for Imidane's Recruiter, maybe I don't, not a big deal. Like that sort of stuff is a conversation about splashing that we haven't had really in a format before. Right. Well, and I also think just something of the mindset of if I have an Imidane's recruiter in my pile, it's going to be very hard for me to leave it on the sidelines, even if I don't end up red, white, like I'm going to end up green, black. (laughs) Yeah. Like I don't think it's crazy. There's, there's a lot of ways to, to splash fixing. Like, I mean, maybe not if you're exactly green, black, but it's yeah. going to be it's going to be tough for it to a path to have gone through the draft where that that card doesn't end up in my main deck. And I also owe that card an apology. It might actually be the fourth best card in the set. It might just be the best. Honestly, <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty gross. Yeah, I had double in my sealed pool yesterday and then my last round opponent had two of them as well. And I was like, yep, this makes sense. <laughs> Great lists. I love that conversation. Shall we Shall we round out the episode today with some underrated cards, some little diamonds in the rough out there for our listeners to be able to snag in these uh, these last few weeks of the format? Please do. Let's let's start with your OLIs, and then we'll start with my OLIs. Okay, so I have two. Yeah, two outside looking in of my, my top five underrated cards. Oh, wow, I, now I look like a jerk. I have five OLIs. You were like, I have so many underrated cards. I did. I just sort of stopped. I could I could have gotten more. I just sort of stopped adding because I was like, I don't, I didn't see any of the cards that I was choosing between unseating the top five, like the top five I really wanted to talk about. So I would just sort of stopped, but I, I want to shout out two. Uh, there are two artifacts. Somehow I have become the garbage red common equipment <laughs> champion. <laughs> it's not a not a great not a great place to be. Not a great place to be. But I want to talk about bespoke battle garb. Oh no. <laughs> This is one in red for an equipment, gives equipped creature plus two plus oh, but at a celebration, if you've celebrated before your uh, combat phase, you can auto equip it to something. And the auto equip part of this is the way that I started to to frame it in my head is that, you know, some one of the ways we've seen equipment pass the, the muster test recently is that it has the, when it comes into play, you get to auto attach it to something. So it sort of feels like an aura that then dies into a thing you can move around. Bespoke Battle Garb, Specifically in Boros aggressive decks, and like there's a lot of there's gonna be a lot of caveats here, but specifically in Boros aggressive decks, the fact that it it contributes to a celebration trigger is really good. And that's one of the things I was talking about weeks ago, where I was when I talked about not understanding Archon's glory, which I now very much do understand that trick. But one of the things I was having trouble wrapping my head around was I care about celebration, but it doesn't contribute to the celebration conversation. Bespoke Battle Guard does contribute to that and specifically contributes to it. Again, I'm going to say in aggressive decks, aggressive decks with Ginger Brutes, which may or may not be a card I'm going to talk about in my top five. <laughs> but 
when you've got ginger brutes, battle garb is just such a great way to suit them up. A three power unblockable creature is a real clock. And then battle garb just threatens to go somewhere else. Once they answer the ginger brute, it's Alsa, which I did look up for all of my cards. It's at average last seen at is 8.5. So it's not really underrated, <laughs> but I do think it's a, it's a card that I don't see people thinking about enough when they're building their Boros decks, and those are some spots to think about it. Question I have for you. How many of your Boros decks do you expect to play Bespoke Battle Garb on average? More than 50%. Whoa. Play play a Bespoke Battle Garb? I would say more than 50%. Wow. That is shocking yeah. to me. Uh, my other OLI is Ariat's Tempting Apple. This is the four mana artifact. It's legendary. Four mana artifact. It steals something, and then you can pay three to either crack it as a food to gain three life or to have your opponent lose three life. Uh, shout out to Beers SC, who is a, a frequent stream attendee and member of our Discord when he decides to uh, to pop in and share a deck with me. But he early on was like, I think red, I think the two, um, I think the two active treason variants in Ariat's Tempting Apple and uh, what's a Tempting Fealty is the the red one, which would have been on my list too. But then I was like, I can't put both, whatever. But the two steel effects I think are are quite good. Ariat's Tempting Apple really gets that bump for the, the the loss of life. It just really is not hard for this card to truly win you the game with both parts of it being relevant. It's like and a it's lava axe that deals eight. <laughs> right. Like it's so good. And then there's like, then there is like a little bit, you have food synergy. Like I randomly had a, a green white deck with two copies of Night of the Sweets Revenge. And then I was just like, sick, I'll play Ariat's Tempting Apple on that because <laughs> it's a steel effect that then turns into a mana rock for me. Like this is excellent. So I just think the card has a lot of lot more applications than it's Alsa at 5.63 would, uh, would state. All right. My OLIs. I have three that are kind of grouped into a category here, but Collector's Vault, Brave the Wilds, and Evolving Wilds, all OLI. And I think people are recognizing them as good cards, but I still don't think people are picking them quite highly enough. Like if you see yourself playing in a space that is not focused aggro, those cards I think are are borderline irreplaceable for you to pick up. Certainly Evolving Wilds is the best of them. Collector's Vault, I'm I'm willing to say is a, is a bit mana intensive, but if you're green, like Brave the Wilds is incredibly important to pick up. I, I still just think those cards are underrated somehow. Co-sign that for sure. All right, next, OLI Hearth Elemental. This is five and a red for the four five, and it has an adventure for one and a red where you can discard your hand, draw two cards, and it also costs one less to cast for each instant sorcery or adventure card in your graveyard. I picked this the other day and someone, it was like seventh pick or something, and I was not red. And someone said, you have all creatures. Sure. Like, great. Hearth Elemental is an excellent card at six mana, four, five, with the adventure of one and a red, discard your hand draw two cards like it's just a very good magic the gathering card regardless of how much synergy you have with it the, the floor is very high and then you can turn it into an even better card if you have instant sorceries and adventures i can't tell you how many times my opponent has like one card left in their hand and they're like going to tap out and i'm like great what bring it on like now you empty <laughs> your hand the elemental, you're like, and the adventure ah. heart elemental and i'm like oh my god because <laughs> it's not draw two it's draw three, and draw one of the three, three is a four or five. Yeah, your like, opponent just cracked hatching plans with a four or five attached to it. Uh-huh. So it's, uh, it's a very good card, and the reverse, so certainly great to take late, no synergy, whatever. The reverse is you can get like two early, and then that's your whole plan is like my deck is all cheap stuff so that whenever I see Hearth Elemental, my hand's empty. And it's a draw three. Yeah, it, I think the card is. I think people recognize the card is good. I don't think they recognize how good that card is. And lastly, on this list, Tenacious Tome Seeker. Two and a blue, three, two bargain. When you bargain, it bring back an instant or a sorcery. This card wheels. Like, yeah. this card should never wheel. Like, if, if this card is wheeling, you should be drafting blue, in my opinion. It's very powerful. Like, the bargain is great on it rebuying a cheap removal spell it's just so much value packed into one card and not something you're going to first pick but something that goes too late i think because of how bad of a wrap blue has gotten all right my number five because ben forced me to put these into an actual factual yes, order yes let's go my number five on this list we're gonna go five up we're gonna go bottom up here and my number five is knight of the sweets revenge this is three and a green for an enchantment when i enter the battlefield you get a food all of your food taps for green mana and you pay seven 
to sacrifice Knight of the Sweets Revenge, give all of your creatures plus X plus X, where X is the number of food you control at sorcery speed. This card is awesome. It, like I said, sort of in a similar vein to Hearth Elemental. Like it's great in a dedicated food deck. And once you get two, which is not hard to do because people don't like it, it becomes your whole deck's game plan. And all of a sudden cards like Ariat's Tempting Apple or Candy Trail become just Candy Trail especially just becomes a one mana rock that scries two for you. And then when you don't need it anymore, you can sack to draw a card and gain three. Whew. Your hollow scavengers just become incredible. Your sweet tooth witches become incredible. These these little three twos that make food that are then that also are mana dorks that have haste because the food doesn't have summoning sickness to tap. So double spelling or, or casting the adventure off hollow scavenger is just free because it replaces itself. Like I think Night of the Sweet's Revenge is really cool. Honestly, for the mana portion of it first. And then at a certain point you go, what are you at? How many bodies do I have? And maybe it doesn't even win you the game, but it puts your opponent in a tough spot at the very least. I think this card's great. It's rectangle theory at its finest. That's true. My number five, Kellen's Lightblades. One and a white, instant speed deal three. You can bargain to destroy an attacking or blocking creature. Card is incredible in control decks and goes criminally late, I think, as a result of people not wanting to draft control decks and people being a little down on white. I think white has got like blue. I would buy as a little maybe less powerful than the other four colors. I think white's up there with white's black great. and green, certainly. And I think red is great. Like to me, it goes like the format goes red, gap, abzan colors, kind of a gap. Blue. blue like that's yeah. how i would characterize the format i buy that little abzan sandwich my number four a card we've already talked about today hatching plans one in a blue for an enchantment uh, whenever hatching plans goes to the graveyard from the battlefield you draw three cards I-, I will contend that i believe hatching plans is blue's best non-rare in the format I think it is incredible and goes criminally late. I think, you know, Sam Black sort of was, has been talking about this on his stream. I haven't listened to his episode, but I know he did an episode of Drafting Archetypes on Blue Bargain. And his idea about Blue as Bargain really opened my eyes because it unlocked what I thought. I was like, Hatching Plans feels like it's this sort of island of a card because it's so good. But how do you group that into what else Blue is doing? Well, and it's it's thinking about all the cards that, that we've sort of talked about. Like, I do like Johan Stopgap more than you, it sounds like. But certainly the, the Tome Seeker that you shouted out already. But even the, what is it, Diminishing Witch? The common 3-2 that puts a cursed roll token on something if you bargain it. Like, that's Hatching Plan's best friend because you can get the witch so late and it's not bad. It's just not bad. And like, Hatching Plan's so good. Every time my opponent plays this on turn two, I have a sinking feeling because I just know at a certain point, very soon, they're going to be drawing three. Yeah, card's great. Number four for me, Edgewall in. The land ETBs, you get to choose a color, three tap, rebuy an adventure card. This card goes so late. I, I refuse to almost pass Edgewall in. Like it's got to be a premium, premium card in the format for me to take it over Edgewall in. Card just does so much. It ties the rim together so many times in decks that are trying to splash. It rebuys two of the best cards in the format in Hearth Elemental and Imidane's Recruiter. Mm-hmm. And and not even those two. So many of the off-color adventure cards are just backbreaking. It's a it's a land that is a three for one at, at like zero cost to the playable count in your deck. It's so powerful. Completely cosine. Very hard for me to pass that card. Number three, I told you might be on my list, and here it is. Ginger Brute. He's back from original Eldraine. This is a single mana artifact. It has haste. Uh, it's a one one. It's a single mana artifact. It's a one one with haste. You can pay one to make it not be able to be blocked except by creatures with haste and you can pay two to uh, crack it as a food to gain three life. Ginger Brute is young hero roll tokens, best friend. It's bespoke battle garbs, best friend. It is, I think a secret red card in the format, but is not treated as such. I think people pass up on this too much. And I, I would say probably, and then the flip side is play it too much in black green decks. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Somehow both, they yeah. pass it too much and they play it too much. Right. The, the food part of this should not allure you into black green, but the aggressive, hasty, pseudo unblockable nature of this should definitely appeal to you. And it, it if you think about it as a red card, it's one of red's best threats at common. Yeah. Point for you from the crash course. I'm embarrassed at my evaluation <laughs> of this card. I see, but my all my evaluation was 
was we missed this card in original Eldraine. So I'm just going to assume I'm missing stuff about this card in this format. That's a great call by you. <laughs> Number three on my list, Red Cap Thief. Two and a red for the mm. two, three ETBs. Make a treasure. This is not like an aggressive card, but if you're playing red decks that are not red, white aggro, Red Cap Thief is excellent. It's Sweet Tooth Witch levels of good. It's a it's a two, three. It's treasure to help you splash it's rectangle theory it is all of those things and i i I have a crush on red cap thief not gonna lie this biggest mover up for me i think in the last two weeks yeah i buy it i'm also i'm like are we gonna have no overlap on that would be impressive magic the gathering is an great game yeah uh my number two hopeless nightmare Single black for an enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, your opponent loses two life and they discard a card. Whenever Hopeless Nightmare goes to the graveyard, you scry two and you can pay two in a black to sacrifice it. Somehow, this is on 17 lands, both the fourth best common in the set and also its average last seen at is at five. It's at 4.97. That is criminally late. This card goes sixth, seventh, eighth, wheels sometimes, because I think people just don't get it. And there is an interesting thing where Hopeless Nightmare doesn't, you can cut it, right, from your best red-black aggressive decks, from your decks that don't have synergy with it as a way to pick it up with Celebrant, or uh, you have bargain, you have the sort of tipped scales of, I have too few ways to bargain, and far too much fodder, I don't have a way to freely sacrifice this. Um, there are times where this is on the sidelines, but more often than not, this card is excellent. Um, fire this off early and often, happy to play it on turn one, and just have that thing sitting on the battlefield for me to do with what I want as the game progresses. I think this card is criminally underrated. I'm I'm somebody that's contributing to those stats. I, I, I'm too low on this card, most likely, and I, I agree that it is good. I, I want to shout it out as the prime example of one of the cards I was talking about that needs other cards you around. Need, right? Yeah, yeah. Know like, the home, for know, sure. Yes, know the home. And like exactly like you said, it's the type of card that can be one of the best cards in your deck, or maybe you don't include it, which is yes. just... A very cool feature of this format, I think. All right, my number two, Barrow Naughty. One in a black for that one, three flying fairy. It's lifelink if you control another fairy and you can pay two in a black to pump it. Hey, really like this card. It works well with itself. It's it's tough, I think, to find a home for it. But when you do have the right deck for it again, this all of a sudden goes from a, a card that is like I, I, the power level just ranges so wildly. And again, it's not a high pick, but it's if you find the right home, if you have a deck that wants Barrow Naughty, you're wheeling a premium two drop for your deck. Well, that's one of the very cool things about it is that you get the first one like pick seven, eight, nine, and then the next one skyrockets in value to all of a sudden where you're like in pack three, you're like, well, I really like it could wheel but I don't want to risk it not wheeling. So I'm going to just take my third Barrow Naughty right now. Some Whisper Squad vibes from my Korea. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, because it do, they do pump each other up so much. And obviously then, like, there are other fairies that in black you're happy to play. If you end up in blue-black, you know, the fairies there. But, like, I'm hoping to not play bad fairies to make my Barrow Naughties have lifelink. But that's why when you have multiple Barrow Naughties, it's just a nice package to go anywhere. It's tough to get it to work outside of blue black. I, I do think that's true because I've I have been very high on this card. I've tried a lot. It's, uh-huh. it's tough to get it to work outside of blue black. But if you do, it's also, again, very good. Yeah. Uh, my number one, back for seconds. We did it. We did different, it. No, different lists. That's no incredible. Even on the OLI, that is incredible. Uh. Back for seconds is two and a black for an uncommon sorcery. You can return two creature cards from your graveyard to your hand. If you bargain it, though, you can return one of those creatures, if it's mana value, four or less from the graveyard straight to the battlefield. Both you and I, I think, were high on this in seeing it go around the table in our latest draft battle video. And we got a comment on YouTube about why are we high on this card the, even among top players on 17 lands, its win rate is not great. And its win rate is baffling to me because every time I resolve this, I feel like I can't lose. Like, the again, bargain on this is upside. Getting to rebuy a three drop or four drop straight to the battlefield is absurd. Like, you get it, you know, you get stockpiling celebrant back and then you're picking something up and then what you know it's just it it has so the ceiling on this card is through the roof i think and it is 
definitely a card that I have had to sort of temper a little bit because when I see it, fourth, fifth, sixth, I'm like, this is crazy. But I recognize that in in the sense I'm crazy because I'm the one valuing it so highly that I've had to adjust that a little bit on Arena. Um, but the power level of this card is wildly high. Yeah, I, I like back for seconds. I don't think I'm quite as high on it as you, but it's very good. Love back for seconds. Number one for me, underrated cards, Ice Out, baby. Oof. One blue blue counter target spell. It's got bargain. If you bargain it, it's blue blue. There is no better feeling than having control of the board and having an ice out in your hand in this format. And conversely, it feels terrible when your opponent goes ginger brute to drop whatever it's in your hand. Correct. But I do think blue white certainly the best home for this because you get Kellen's light blades to pair along with it. You get the quick studies like you can play draw go control in this format and ice out is incredible in those decks. And you get it so late. Like there's just so many ways to turn in D looking cards into much better cards in your deck. And I think ice out is the perfect example of that. You never need to spend a high pick on it, but it's a very powerful card. Bargain just upside on this card. Yeah, like, bargain's great. Many times when you have four, three mana available, you bargain this because you get to sacrifice that hatching plans, whatever. Like bargain is just pure upside on this. Again, a card that I thought I was like, uh, bargain doesn't matter on this. Like it's just cancel. Nope. Bargain's great. Yeah. Bargain is truly excellent. This was fun. This was fun. All right. Any parting thoughts before we go? More lists and good luck to me in uh, sealed day two. Good luck to you. I want to know which deck you end up running. I hope it is black green and I hope you crush. I got to say before the episode, Ben was like, you should message 2.cube, message Carl and see what he thinks between the red black aggro and the black green soupy gruff triplets deck. Unfortunately, he said red black. Did he really? I'm so disappointed in Carl. I think I'm going to run the black green one. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Good luck, man. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thanks so much to Cool Stuff Inc. for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over there, and you should head over there, please use code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you there. And more importantly, to get 5% off anything that you purchase. You can find all of our content at lordsoflimited.com. Links to our Twitch streams, links to our YouTube channel, baby, popping off with the episode every week and trying to get at least one other piece of content on the YouTube channel every week for you. So be sure to check that out, like and subscribe, all that good stuff. You can find links to our tier list, to our merch, to our episode backlog, all of that at lordsoflimited.com. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.